New research looking at the availability of mental health care facilities in England has recently been published in the British Medical Journal. The paper has shown that the number of people being admitted involuntarily to inpatient psychiatric care has increased dramatically, but the number of NHS beds has fallen. Professor Scott Weich, Professor of Psychiatry at Warwick Medical School, wrote an accompanying editorial on this research. He's calling for the focus to shift from patient and bed numbers to the quality of patient care. So could you tell me currently how many psychiatric NHS beds we've got in England? At, at the moment, uh, the way these are calculated is um, so that you know one can do uh, comparisons internationally. It's calculated on the number of beds per 100,000 population. And currently in the UK we have... The, the, the figure that's quoted by the WHO is 23 beds per 100,000 adult population. And how much has that declined, say, over the last 10 years? So over the last 10 years, we've seen a 30% reduction in beds. And if you go back 50 years, the, the total reduction has been something like 80%. And what's been the main reasons for that reduction? I think historically, it's really about deinstitutionalisation. It's about moving people out of asylums. And there were, obviously, back in the 1950s and 60s, there were um, very large asylums that had been created in Victorian times and um, there were a number of scandals, there were a number of kind of uh, disclosures of really inadequate care and neglect in these uh, big, big, big hospitals and so there was a, a great sort of desire to close them which kind of originally coincided also with you know changes in treatment so that it was possible with the advent of new forms of medication to actually improve the outcome for people with, with uh, serious mental illness. But it's also true that many people uh, who simply kind of exhibited problem behaviours were incarcerated for many years. So the asylum closure programme really finished, I think, completely by the early 1990s. But even over the last 10 years, there's still been a further reduction in beds. And I think that's part of uh, continuing, uh, continuing push towards treating people closer to where they live. Mm -hmm. um, this country has seen, you know, a huge and very successful uh, 10, 15 year programme of the development of community mental health services, which has um, which has been phenomenal, which has led the way. It's recent. There was a, a on the same day that this particular paper that we're talking about was published. There was a WHO report on um, uh, psychiatric services across Europe, an international comparison, which the UK came out you know extremely favourably, really at the top of the the, the, the kind of league in terms of uh, monies being spent on mental health services, and you know equally at the top in terms of the quality of community services. So is the majority of the NHS money being spent on mental health care? Is that going to community services or is there still quite a significant chunk going to inpatient services? In terms of where care is delivered and in terms of where people work and in terms of where most people receive care, it's in the community. But the problem is, and, and you know, the big headache still for the NHS, is that where the, you know, most of the money still goes on inpatient beds. The, the current uh, NHS uh, mental health budget is uh, something like £6 million a year, of which about two-thirds is spent on kind of bricks and mortar inpatient facilities. And it's a real problem for the delivery of care when the real kind of improvements, the real quality of care, the, the, the kind of, you know, the everyday work is done in the community. But for the rare times when people need to be in hospital, it's extremely expensive to maintain facilities. And is it facilities or is it also staffing costs that makes it so expensive? You know, I think it's both. I mean, I think it's both because obviously you need high levels of, of, of staffing round the clock, you know, to cope with people who are very ill. But I think, I think it is, I think it's not very often, you know, largely the cost of, of maintaining uh, buildings. 
in your opinion, the inpatient services that we have now, are they sufficient? Do you think we need more? Do you think we should be moving more towards community health? If you, if you look at this European report, this WHO report, which came out of their European office, I've quoted the figure of 23 beds uh, per 100,000 population in the UK. The UK is has just about, across all the European countries, has, 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 has the fewest number of beds. The furthest extreme, I think, is uh, Norway, and I think there are over 100 beds per 100,000. So there's a long distribution, and the UK is right at the kind of extreme. And although, you know, historically people probably would have jumped up and down and said, you know, this is because of underfunding and it's inadequate, and it's to, actually it's something to be very proud of. And if you ask service users, they actually would prefer if we had no beds. Mm -hmm. People who use services... You know, all the bits of the care that they receive, they're kind of least happy about having to be admitted to hospital. Um, so I would say that actually getting down as low as we've, we have done is a sort of sign of success in terms of the delivery of, of mental health services. But I think it's got further to go and I think it could go further. The research paper that we've been discussing, um, it was talking about the numbers of involuntary admissions rising. What what are the main reasons for this? Why is that happening? Well, you're absolutely right. Although bed numbers are coming down, um, not only the number of, of patients detained going up, but also the proportion of detained patients within the inpatient units is is going up dramatically. I think it's it's kind of complicated. I think there's a number of factors. I think one is that um, people only get admitted to hospital when they're very ill and when all other kind of treatment options have been exhausted. I think we're also sort of overlooking in, in looking at the kind of global or kind of national statistics, I think we're overlooking a lot of local variation. Um, I think the truth is that, you know, probably more than any other form of ill health, you know, mental illness is very strongly related to, to socioeconomic deprivation. And when you get into the kind of inner cities and when you get into very deprived communities, you know, different things happen and different sort of pictures emerge from what you see in, 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 in the rest of the country. And I think those are also the places where, because of multiple kind of deprivation, it's very difficult to provide care, and where people are living isolated lives, perhaps on low income or benefits without adequate housing, it's very difficult to provide community services. I think we've also got a big problem in this country, which is well known, and that's, you know, huge ethnic variation in the way in which care is received, so that people from black and minority ethnic groups are more likely to be admitted to hospital and more likely to be detained in hospital, and that's a big problem. But I think, I think that doesn't really emerge so clearly when we see these, you know, these kind of overall kind of headline rates. So when we talk about care in the community, what kind of facilities are there? Nowadays, you know, services in this country are, you know, phenomenally diverse, comprehensive, systematic and organised. So government led the way in this. So in, in 1999, they set out the National Service Framework, which was a blueprint for how services uh, should be delivered. Historically, there was too much variability that you could have you know, you could have good and bad services next to each other. This was a kind of blueprint to kind of describe the, the, the basic architecture of what services should look like. And they stipulate things such as that all areas should have a 24-hour day crisis service. So it means any time of day or night, somebody who's in crisis should have the opportunity to uh, be assessed, but also to have the opportunity to be treated at home through that crisis if that's feasible, you know, if, if they're willing to accept that, if, you know, it's safe for them to do so and if they've got the kind of support and the accommodation in which they can be looked after. So that takes care of kind of acute episodes of care. Once people have, through that acute episode of care, community mental health teams follow people up for longer periods of time. They plan for care that, you know, allows people to recover from 
episodes, manage relapses better, you know, improve social functioning, and hopefully, you know, improve generally their mental health and ultimately kind of prevent sort of relapses. We've got now early intervention services, which are about recognising that in the very kind of early stages of serious mental illness, especially, you know, when people are very young and when it's often unclear to people what's really going on, that a long time can elapse before people get effective treatment. And so now early intervention services exist around, across the country. It's one of the things that the EU report highlighted is that we're the only country that has a comprehensive early intervention service. Uh, across the whole country for, for, for people in the very earliest stages of, of kind of major mental illness to try to reduce that interval where people go without sort of treatment um, and also you know where people can receive age-appropriate services because services that are necessary if you're 16 or 17 and experiencing your first breakdown very different from what you need if you're in midlife and have had multiple kind of uh, mental health problems kinds of sort of outreach services that are intended to engage people who are very reluctant to accept care or who you know have multiple needs that are very hard to kind of manage by you know twice monthly kind of visits from a CPN so there's all kinds of different and diverse sort of services that are all coordinated and organized through what we call the care program approach and that's the idea that you have one named key worker who is assigned to you who assesses what your needs are and coordinates a package of care that's appropriate to you so community services are very diverse and, by and large, very, very effective. It doesn't mean that they stop people breaking down altogether. Um, and the difficulty that we sometimes have is that there are individuals and there are groups of individuals who really are kind of difficult to engage, who don't kind of accept or want even the kind of best, best care. And what about ages of people at the moment suffering from mental health problems? Is there a specific age group that's affected more than another or are we seeing younger people being affected? I think there is a lot of concern actually that 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 there are you know more and more kind of uh, kind of mental health problems emerging amongst young people. Services tend to be divided up according to kind of age. So there are services that are for children and adolescents that tend to finish at 16 or 18. There are adult uh, services for adults of working age that tend to go to sort of 65, 70. And then there are services that are specific for old age, which kind of reflects I think the fact that problems that arise in those different age groups are are different. And the big kind of you know. I mean, I'm talking today mainly about kind of adult mental health services mm -hmm. because those are the biggest, they have the biggest budgets, they, you know, are, are delivered to the biggest number of people. But the kind of elephant in the room and the thing that, you know, really is, is going to kind of overshadow, you know, all of these kind of questions in years to come is, 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 you know, the care and treatment of dementia because the kind of demographics make it clear that the numbers are only going to increase, that people are going to live for longer and require more care. For, for longer and longer periods of time, at a time when fewer people are kind of working and contributing to the to the you know, benefit system. So, do you think at the moment policymakers are listening to patients, listening to what they want in terms of care? I, I think increasingly, I think in mental health, uh, I, I think in service, the service user voice is being heard. I think we're often very sort of critical of ourselves, and I suspect we're doing a, a perhaps a, a better job than in many other sort of branches of medicine. Whether service users would feel that their voices are always heard is a, is a, is a, is a different sort of matter. People are getting more organised. There are more kind of fora in which those voices are, are being expressed. Whether they quite reach the policy makers, I don't know. I think the people who most listen to service users are the people who actually provide care. So the service user fora, patient fora, are often convened within the kind of setting of, 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 of kind of treatment and, and, you know, within sort of units where... Our care is being provided, whether commissioners have easy access to that and indirectly whether the policy makers 
are hearing those voices. I don't know. I think if you talk to service users, and even more so if you talk to carers, they feel very often very disempowered, as if their voices are, are really uh, kind of not being listened to. And it's very difficult. I mean, we, as I mean, I work part of the time as a, as a provider, as a consultant psychiatrist, and we listen and we try to listen and we hear. And we believe that part of our job is to advocate for people whose voices are often sort of not heard. But within the kind of separation between commissioning and providing of services, again, there's a kind of a distance, a separation. And so whether those voices are really genuinely being kind of heard further up the line, I don't, you know, I couldn't, couldn't say for sure. So how do you see the future of mental health care unfolding? I think the first thing that has to happen is I think we have to recognise how well we're doing in this country. I mean, I think it has been said before, but I think we're at a stage that we've come to the end of probably 10 years of expansion. Budgets were growing. There was more money. You know, this, this government has put, you know, genuinely put, you know, vastly more money than its predecessors into mental health services. You know, we continue to argue that it's not enough, but actually we've seen a growth. And I think all of these community services that I was have just been describing, you know, reflect actually what's what's happened in that. So we're coming to the end of that period. You know, budgets, I mean, quite apart from the kind of credit crunch and global financial problems, it was very clear that the period of expansion is kind of finished. And now we need to think very much harder about how we manage the kind of resources that we already have and how we make those work to better effect. And I think there are lots of exciting ways in which we could do that. But I think that's that's the kind of reality. So we will go through this period where people feel the pinch a bit, where they feel that services are not expanding as they have done, and they may lose sight of the fact of how far we've come in the last sort of 10 years or so. I think in terms of inpatient services, which is where we started from today, given how much money is spent on them, I think the next great sort of step leap forward that we will see will be really working that resource more effectively. At the moment, we don't. You know, historically what happens, somebody gets admitted to hospital and then things slow down. You know, a lot of things happen. You know, you might see a crisis team, you might see CPNs, you might see mental health services in the community. And then everybody trying to keep you out of hospital finally it's decided that you have to go in because really that's what you need. And then things kind of slow down. You get care, nursing staff, medical staff, it's all, you know, even the physical environments in inpatient wards has improved dramatically. But, you know, the treatment decisions and the kind of pace of treatment tends to slow down. So people end up staying in hospital an awful lot longer than they ever expected. And although we don't do too bad in terms of, you know, length of stay. I think patients would often, service users would often say that they feel that that's the bit that they... So I think what's happening in a lot of organisations is that they're looking at new ways of, of, of kind of, you know, what they call sort of sweating the resource, you know, making the, the, the kind of inpatient unit work more effectively, having different ways of structuring the care so when people come in they don't just go to a ward and then wait for a week before they see a consultant, but they actually go first to a, maybe an assessment ward where they might be able to kind of be returned, you know, with the support of a crisis team back home after 24, 48 hours. And that those who do have to stay in for longer will have their care and treatment decisions made, you know, much more frequently and, you know, their need for care uh, assessed on a, on a more kind of intensive basis. And where we use the crisis teams not just as a source of, you know, as sometimes happens, delivering patients to the hospital, but actually kind of working with them to take them out as soon as possible. And I, th I think we'll see a lot more of that. I, I, see, I think we'll see bed numbers shrink further, and I think we'll see turnover within the units um, increase. And what about research in this area? What are the main areas you think that would benefit from more research? I, I, th I think the mental health sort of spend on research has always lagged far behind other areas of research. Um, I can't remember the statistics offhand, but, you know, compared with other uh, specialties like oncology, you know, relative to the, the amount of 
kind of morbidity in the community, the mental health uh, research budgets have always been very, very uh, small. And I think we continue to have need of, of studies that actually evaluate the effectiveness of what we're doing. Um, that's happening to an extent. I think the creation of the Mental Health Research Network and, and you know, other research networks has, has taken us to a place where we have an infrastructure now to deliver you know, sizable and definitive clinical trials. But I don't think the kind of funding is yet at a level to kind of, you know, fully, you know, make use of that infrastructure. So I think we still need, you know, more investment in, in I would say, in, in, in trials that, you know, are actually looking at the care that's actually being delivered uh, and, and determining what is and what isn't effective.